is going to be continuing his thought from chapter 1. Again, sometimes we forget that these chapter breaks are inserted there for our benefits. Um, but this is definitely a, a continuation of what Paul was talking about in chapter 1. And what Paul is going to look at in chapter 2, as he's kind of, I guess let me back up for a second, the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is kind of giving us the why we do what we do, and then he's going to give us the, the what to do, how, like how to do what we do as believers. This second chapter is looking in and kind of zooming in on the personal implications of our salvation in verses 1 through 10, and we're going to cover that today. It's kind of a two-part message, because really this goes hand in hand, and I don't want you to think that you can separate these. And sadly, in American culture, we have got this idea that as long as it's me and God, we're good. But that's not ever in Paul's mind, right? Paul's, here's the individual implications. There are things individually that the gospel does for you, but here's what it does corporately. So, so when we are working in our, uh, our giftedness, and, and we talked about all of those spiritual gifts that God has granted to us in chapter 1, that is reflected in the body. That, that is going to show up corporately. This is not something we can just sit at home and do by ourselves and just think, okay, we're fine. So this morning, we're going to look at the first half, verses 1 through 10, of Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at the individual implications of our salvation. And then next week, like I said, we're going to cover verses 11 through 22, which are the corporate implications of our salvation. And we have a lot of ground to cover, so this morning, instead of reading the verses, we're going to, I'm going to kind of walk through it, because I want to make sure I, I can hit everything. There's, there's a lot that Paul has packed into these 10 verses. And I want to break it up by covering verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to cover verses 4 through 10 separately. The first section in verses 1 through 3, Paul is describing our condition before conversion. And, and as we go through this, you're going to be thinking, man, Paul's a bit of a pessimist about us. Yeah, pre-conversion, absolutely he is. But hang with me, because chapter 4, we're going to turn a corner, a, a hard corner, and, and things are going to change. But we have to, we have to go through verses 1 through 3. We have to understand who we are to be able to enjoy the benefit of the gospel. Notice there in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Paul doesn't mince words here. Paul wants us clearly to know that we are dead. We're not kind of good people. We're not, you know, people that, well, we're, you know, we got a little rough edges we need to polish off here and there. No, no, we are dead. That, that's Paul's description of us pre-conversion dead. And then he uses two words here to, to describe why we are dead. The first word that Paul uses to describe is the word trespasses. And the word trespasses literally means crossing over a known boundary. And then he uses the word sin, which means missing the mark or, or falling short of a standard. You, do you see how these two things go together? 
There, there is a mark. There is a, a line in which God has said, do not cross. And what do we do? Oh, we're over here crossing over, right? We don't care. And Paul says, because of that, you are dead in your trespasses and your sin. So what Paul is saying here is that the reason we are dead is because we've fallen short of God's standard. And these two words cover every single transgression that we have ever committed against God. But Paul also uses the word in, and that points not simply to the instrument or cause of our spiritual death, but also to the state or condition of our spiritual death in which people languish today. So Paul says that our trespasses and sin are the, the reasons we are dead, but those trespasses and those uh, sins are also the condition in which we live. So what does Paul mean by the word dead? Because for, for many of us, this is kind of a weird concept if we actually slow down and think about it. For those of you who have been in church, you're like, oh yeah, we're dead in our trespasses and that makes perfect sense. But if you're here visiting, you're, you're thinking, well, I feel alive. I mean, I, I check my pulse. I have a pulse. I don't believe all that stuff you say that, you know, the Bible teaches, but I still feel alive. What do you mean I'm dead? And for many people, this is a very weird concept for us to even assert what Paul is asserting here, that, that they are dead while they're walking around and going to work and creating art and, and building businesses and doing all of these things. And yet, Paul says that if you're openly denying Jesus Christ, you're dead. Why would he say that? Even when they appear alive, are we to say that? Are we to walk around and say that, that those who haven't been saved are dead? Paul's answer is absolutely yes. Because to Paul, the realm that matters the most, in the spiritual realm, they are dead. It, it, it's not so much about this, this physical life. Remember that this world, this world is, is but a, a shadow. Or as James says, our life is but a vapor, right? That's our physical life. Paul's looking at this going in our spiritual, in our eternal life, to the life to the end of the age life. They are dead because they don't know God. They don't love God. They don't have a relationship with God. They're blind to the glory of Jesus Christ. They're deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We are dead when we have no love for God and no awareness of His personal reality. Because, because of this, Paul would say, if that's you this morning, that you are as unresponsive as a corpse. Because in the ways that matter most, you are dead. Sure, you got a pulse, but one day that pulse is going to stop. Then what? You'll be just as spiritually dead as you are physically dead. This is why we should not hesitate to agree with what Paul is saying here. That a life without God, no matter how physically fit or mentally alert a person is, is a living death. 
that those who live are dead even while they are living. Notice also what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that people are born alive and then slowly die through sinning, and then through the gospel they're made alive again. Paul is is not saying we're born spiritually alive and then we die because of our sin. No, to Paul, people are born dead. That is how we are born into this world, dead. And we remain so until that moment in which we believe the gospel. And at that moment, we truly become alive. People who are dead cannot come to life on their own accord. It is only God that can make them alive. So Paul goes on to speak of the ways that God gives life in verses 5 and 6 that we'll see in just a minute. But he's still got some more bad news for us. The second thing we see Paul saying about our condition before conversion is this. We lived in conformity with the patterns of this world. That we have lived in the conformity with the conformity with the patterns of this world. He goes on in verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul continues in this first part of verse 2 by saying, in which you once walked. In other words, trespasses and sins are just how we live our life. That's just normal for us. That, that's our everyday Monday through Sunday life. And this, is, this, this idea of walking is a common expression of Paul's. To say that a person is walking in something means to walk. The, the, the walk means your, your ethical conduct or how you live. It's, it's not just physically walking down a road. It's, it's a metaphor for this is how you live your life. And Paul is saying in this first part of Ephesians chapter 2, the way in which we live our life, the way we conduct ourselves without Christ, is trespasses and sin. That is our default position in life. Paul goes on in verse 2 to say that we are following the course of this world. What Paul is saying here is that literally we are walking according to the age of this world. One commentator says about this phrase, the Greek word that Paul uses here means age, and Paul has already employed this term in chapter 1, verse 21, in a temporal sense, and he does so again in chapter 2, verse 7. We'll see that in a minute. The phrase signifies the world existing for a particular span of time. So what Paul is saying is that before our salvation, we are living according to the age of of this world instead of living according to the age to come or the heavenly realm. This is where that little video I I shared out with y'all yesterday on the church's webpage will help you a little bit. I encourage you to go watch that if you haven't. The way in which one lives before salvation is simply in line with the norms and the values of a world that is hostile to God. That's what we are walking in pre-conversion. But there's a third thing Paul wants us to see about our life prior to salvation. And it's this, that we, live under, we lived under the influence of Satan himself. 
See what he says there in the second part of verse 2 when Paul says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience? You know, Satan is described in many ways in the Bible. We see in the Gospels, we see him described as the ruler of demons in Matthew 9, chapter 12, Mark 3, Luke 11. We've seen him described as the prince of this world in John chapter 12 and 14. And in Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians 4, you see him described as the God of this age, this time period. Here, Paul describes him as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul says that now Satan is at work or working, in some translations, in the sons of disobedience. And the word that Paul uses here, or there, for, for work, he used earlier in chapter 1, verse 11, speaking of God's activity, his supernatural activity in the world. There, Paul is describing God's, his supernatural activity in general in the world, but also specifically, in particular, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that supernatural event. So here, Paul is referring to Satan's supernatural activity in the world by exerting a negative influence over the life of unbelievers. I want to point out here again what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that every unbeliever is demon-possessed. Do not hear that. That is not what Paul is saying. But it does mean that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We see this in 1 John 5, 19, where John says, literally, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Notice again that Paul says that Satan is working now in the sons of disobedience. Even though the, the believers that were reading Paul's letter or, or having Paul's letter read to them were no longer in bondage to Satan, that doesn't mean that Satan's power ceased to exist in their life. And Paul wanted them to be aware of that. Instead, what Paul is saying is that Satan is still actively present and working amongst all who remain in unbelief. So we're still going to have problems with people in our lives. Just, just because we are in Christ doesn't mean all of our problems go away. It, it doesn't mean you, you're going to go to work tomorrow and your boss is going to love you. Not if he's a son of disobedience. He's probably going to hate you more. And Paul, being the, the pastoral person that he is, he cares for you and he wants you to know that may be the reality in your life. And he wants to prepare you for that. Satan is, is actively using these people to attack and persecute the church. Paul is saying the sons of disobedience live like the devil lives. Paul speaks in Romans 8, 4 about believers walking according to the Spirit rather than walking according to the flesh. Again, the idea that Paul is trying to communicate here is one of a controlling influence in a person's life. When we walk according to the flesh, we are under the controlling influence of the devil. When we walk according to the Spirit, we're under the controlling work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And this leads us to the fourth point Paul is trying to get us to see about our life pre-conversion. And we see it in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, 
like the rest of mankind. Paul uses the expression passions of our flesh. And this, this should not be limited to strictly sexual or sensual sins. When Paul refers to the flesh here, he's not referring simply to our physical bodies. But instead, he is referring to the whole of our self-centered, corrupt nature. That is what he means by the flesh. Desires in and of themselves are not evil, but become such when they seek satisfaction in ways forbidden by God. Sex, for instance, is given is a God-given desire, but can become perverted when it turns into lust. The bondage to fleshly lust, Paul describes, of the self-indulgent lifestyle consists of two things we see in this passage. First, doing the desires of the flesh. These are the more carnal sins. Sexual immorality, adultery, etc. But second, doing the desires of the mind. And this is, this is where us church people need to sit up and listen. Because you, you may have mastered these more carnal sins in your life, and you may have reined them in control, but don't forget about the desires of the mind that are just as damning. These are more sins of your thoughts. For example, intellectual pride, ungodly ambition, malice, bitterness, arrogance, just to name a few. So what Paul is saying is that because we are in the bondage to fleshly lust, we cannot blame everything that goes wrong and every sin in our life on the devil. While it is true, as Paul has said, that the devil is at work through the sons of disobedience to cause us to stumble, it is also our flesh that wars against us. So we should see our battle as one really being fought on three fronts. One, it's being fought on the inside of us through our bondage to fleshly lusts. It's being fought on the outside of us by the environment that we live in. And it is also being fought spiritually through the demonic activity of Satan. One part may play a leading role, but listen, guys, always consider all three parts when fighting sin. The fifth and final thing that Paul wants us to see about our state pre-conversion is this. By our own nature, we are objects of divine wrath. By our own nature, we are objects of divine wrath. Paul continues in verse 3 saying that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, you may be asking yourself, what exactly is divine wrath? First, let me say what it is not. Divine wrath is not the loss of self-control or an irrational outburst of anger like your dad may have had. Okay, That is not divine wrath. It was wrath, <laughs> but it, it's not divine wrath. Divine wrath is righteous animosity towards all that is unholy. It's the revulsion of, of, of God's character to that which is a violation of God's will. 
And really, it's, it's appropriate to speak of divine wrath as a function of God's divine love. Let me say that again. It's appropriate to speak of divine wrath as a function of God's divine love. For God's wrath, it's his love for holiness and truth and justice. That, that's why there is a wrath. It's because he loves holiness, truth, and justice. And it is because of God passionately loving purity and perfection that causes his wrath toward anything and anyone that defies them. Packer explains it like this in Knowing God. Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil which is a necessary part of moral perfection that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. This is what we are by nature pre-conversion. The only thing we are worthy of is divine wrath. That is God's only appropriate response to us pre-conversion. So to wrap up this section, what Paul has been expounding is the biblical doctrine of original sin. And original sin means that we are born into a corrupt and therefore condemnable condition. Every single one of us in this room was born into the same condition. Where did this, come, this condition come from, you may be asking? The answer is Adam in the fall. And this, this concludes the first section of Paul's discussion of what our state was like before conversion. Now comes two of my favorite words in all of the Bible. We see them there in verses, the first two words of verse 4. But God. Guys, we, we were dead. We, we were hopeless. We were only subject to his wrath. But God. We were dead in our sin and our trespasses, but God. Here, Paul turns the corner now, and he wants us to see the personal implications of what it looks like to the believer after accepting Christ and putting their faith in him. And for Paul, this can only happen with God intervening. And so we have these two glorious words. I hope you grow to love them as much as I love them. But God. Paul's going to outline for us the, the personal implications of what salvation means to each and every one of us. Our condition after conversion being made alive in Christ. And I think we can break this section down best by answering three questions about our salvation. I want to break it down and look at what, in verses 4 through 6, why, in verse 7, and then how, in verses 8 through 10. 
So first, let's start with the what or the, the nature of our salvation in Christ in verses 4 through 6. Paul says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses and sin made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice three ways that Paul answers this question of what in verses 4 through 6. Paul says, first, that God made us alive together with Christ. That's what he did. He took something dead and he made it alive. Second, he raised us up with him. In other words, with Christ. That's what he did. He, he raised us from death with Christ. Third, he seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is the what of our salvation. What, what do we get from salvation? What happens at salvation? These three things. God made us alive, he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him. And what's exciting to me about this is Paul is talking about Christians is mirroring what happened to Jesus Christ himself. In other places, we have read that, that this is what has happened to God through his son, Jesus Christ, that, that God made Jesus alive again, that he raised him up, and that he has seated him at the right hand of the Father. And now Paul is saying, hey guys, that's also true of us. That's what's so glorious about the gospel. That's what's so amazing about the gospel, is that what God has done for Jesus, he's now done for each and every believer that puts their faith in Jesus. So Paul is saying that what our salvation is is the exact same thing that happened to Jesus Christ himself. So we, like him, will be raised from being dead in our trespasses and sin and made alive. And that God will raise us up with him in the resurrection so that when we die a physical death, we will be raised to life through the spiritual resurrection and the, and the physical resurrection of our bodies. And that finally, we are seated with him in heavenly places. I want you to notice also that, that each of these verbs that defines the what of salvation, they're also compounded with the preposition with to emphasize our union with Jesus, right? We are made, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him. This ties back to chapter 1 where, where Paul lists all the spiritual blessings that were our benefit for being with Christ or with him. This is, this is why I say this is not a separate train of thought. Paul is just continuing his train of thought from chapter 1. He is just showing us the benefits of salvation with him. Paul then gives us four reasons for this experience. Four reasons for the what of salvation. First, it was because God is rich in mercy in verse 4. This is another way of saying that God did not have to save us. It's, it was not an obligation for God to save us. And mercy is, is not just pity. Instead, it's a heartfelt compassion that leads God to saving action in our lives. 
And I love this. Paul says, Paul tells us, in this mercy, we got a rich God. He is overflowing with mercy. So first, the first reason for this experience is because God is rich in mercy. Second, it was because of the great love with which he loved us. It is great because of the character of its objects. Any love that could embrace people who are what Paul says we were in verses 1 through 3 must be great, right? You get that? Paul is saying that you dead, stinky, wrath, just deserving people, his great love loved people who were enemies of his. People who wanted to do the exact opposite of what God wanted. That rebelled every chance they got. And yet, his great love. It's great because of how unworthy we were. Do you get that? Do you see that? Do you feel that? Paul wants you to feel the weight of that here. It's not because you were something great. He wasn't looking down going, oh, I see a few diamonds in the rough down there. No, he's looking down and the only thing he can see is sin. And the only thing he feels is wrath. And yet Paul wants you to see the great love of the Father. That even in that state, he loved us. Third, it was in spite of the fact that we were dead in our transgressions. Our wickedness, our enmity against God, were no barrier to the eternal purposes of His love. And then fourth, it was by grace that we have been saved. And that word translated saved here in verse 8 is an inclusive term that embraces God's act of making us alive raising us up and seating us with Christ. Paul could not be clearer concerning the source of God's saving activity in Jesus is clearly not in us, but instead in His inexplicable love for us. I want to stop here for a moment and just remind everyone of the reason why God loved us so much that He sent His Son to die for us. Again, Paul could not be clearer in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 and elsewhere in his writings that God loved us in spite of being dead in our trespasses and sin. You see, when, when God looked down and he saw us, he did not see anything that was lovable. Nothing. There, there was nothing lovable. There was no divine spark. There was, there was no good in us. Instead, when he looked down and he saw each one of us, the only thing he saw was our sin and rebellion and enmity and resistance to him. The only thing Paul says that we stirred in God's heart was his divine wrath. The reason that God gave his son was not because of anything in us that he regarded as worthy of his affection, but solely because of his great love. To those who were his enemies. You see, it's what moves God's heart to send Jesus to die for us was because of 
It wasn't because of anything that was in us. Because if that were the case, it would completely nullify the grace. You see, if, if God saw something in us and was like, oh, I need to save that, I need to do something to fix that, then the cross would be him just repaying a debt. It wouldn't be grace to us. The cross is an expression of grace because Christ died and gave his righteousness to those that only merited hell. That's what makes it grace. And so if there was something that made us worthy when the cross then would not be a gift of grace. Instead, it would become a matter of debt that God had to pay for us. Now, certainly God saved us in Christ in order that he might make treasures of us. And we'll see that in a minute in verse 7. But this is not because we were already treasures in and of ourselves. It was grace. Because the reason for it is found in God's good pleasure to shed his love on people who on, whose only distinguishing characteristics were the fact that they deserved his wrath. One commentator put it like this, when people think about why God smiled on them in the cross of Christ, they should say, it certainly wasn't because of anything in me. In fact, I should have brought only a frown of judgment to his face. That he should have smiled in redemptive love is traceable only to his sovereign and gracious good pleasure. Thanks be to God that he has chosen to make a treasure out of a dung heap. That it was not because I was a treasure, but in spite of my being a dung heap, that he was moved to love me in the first place. Another commentator said it like this, we must be moved and influenced to bless God's name, seeing that he has sought us in the bottom of hell in order to bring us up to the kingdom of heaven. So that is the what of our salvation. Second, I want you to see the why or the purpose of our salvation in verse 7. He says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. To the answer to the question of why, Paul says that making us alive in Christ is setting us free from the guilt and bondage of our spiritual death was not the only reason he saved us. That is a reason, but that is not the ultimate reason. Paul says God's ultimate motivation for saving the lost souls was so that we might become throughout all of eternity trophies on display for all to see the magnificent and surpassing riches of God's grace and kindness in Christ. That is his ultimate purpose. That is the ultimate why. That should be humbling that even the why of salvation is not about you. <laughs> it's about him. One commentator pointed out that the plural of ages is not simply a stylistic variation of the singular, but a more general conception implying one age supervening upon another like successive waves of the sea as far into the future as thought can reach. In the light of this meaning, it may thus be claimed throughout time and in eternity, the church, the society of pardoned rebels, is designed by God to be a masterpiece of his goodness. Amen. That's the why. 
it's, it's, not, it's not us. It's for His glory. Third, the how. We've had the what, we've had the why, and now the how. In other words, what are the, the basis of our salvation in verses 2, 8 through 10? Paul answers the question of how with four parts. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Again, just in case some of you are here thinking, well, I did it. I mean, I, I, Paul is very clear. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul answers this question of how with four parts. First, excuse me, three parts. First, it's by grace through faith. Second, it's a divine gift. Third, it is not of human works. So first, it was by grace through faith. Second, it's a divine gift. And third, it's not of human works. We see the first one there in verse 8 when Paul very clearly says, you don't need a whole lot of explanation for this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That, that God has called us to himself and, and that putting our faith in him through God's grace saves us. Second, there in verse 8, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It is a divine gift. And clearly the gift of God is salvation in all of its parts. So it also includes the, the faith and the grace in the first section there. right? All of that is a part of the, design, the divine gift that God gives us. A salvation that flows out of God's grace and becomes ours through faith. From beginning to end. From inception to consumption, salvation is a gift of God to the elect. Consequently, that faith by which we come into practical possession of what God in grace has provided is as much a gift as every other aspect of salvation. One can no more deny that faith is wrapped up in God's gift to us than he can deny it of God's grace. All is of God. Salvation is of the Lord. Amen? It is not of human works, Paul says. That's the third thing. And this, this verse 9 tells us that, that because of that, we can't boast. And here, works is not works of the Mosaic law, as in Romans and Galatians, but, but human effort in general. In other words, Paul is saying that, that all of the deeds generated by the human heart in an attempt to put God in our debt won't work. That, that's, that's, that's not going to attain us salvation. Salvation does not come from the hands of humans. There is nothing we can do. Stop points out, it is necessary, it, or it is neither your achievement, not your own doing, nor a reward for any of your deeds or religion or philanthropy, not because of works. Since therefore there is no room for human merit, there is no room for human boasting either. 
You see, if, if it's anything that we have done, then we would have room to boast. But Paul is reminding us, it is not because of anything we have done that God has loved us. Quite the opposite, in fact. Salvation by grace through faith destroys boasting. We will not walk around with our chest poked out and say, look at me, I'm a Christian. If we truly understand what Paul is saying here. Instead, we will be humbled by what Paul is saying here. And it's, it's funny, Miranda shared something yesterday that I thought was so good. A humble person is hard to offend. So if you wonder how you're doing in that, whoo, that was a that was a that was a was a bit of a singer right there, right? A humble person is hard to offend. Paul concludes this passage by reminding us of three evidences of our salvation in verse 10. One, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Second, Good works are the purpose, not the cause of our salvation. And three, good works themselves are preordained by God. So let's look, let's look at each one of these as we close this morning. First, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. One, one pastor put it that self-creation is nonsensical. <laughs> you, you see that that this word create is enough to stop the mouths and put away the cackling of such a boast of having any merit. For when they say so, they presuppose that they were their own creators. Paul's point here is that as we contributed nothing to our initial physical creation, neither did we contribute anything to our spiritual recreation. None of you sitting in this room willed yourself into existence. And the same is true of your spiritual birth. The concept of our being the creation of God is linked to the idea of the end of the age and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Paul points here, as he does in 2 Corinthians 5, is that the new creation that is yet to come has already come in part. That in some ways, we are already new creation as God's work of salvation happens in us. And this is not just that one-time experience of, oh, I, I believe, but it's the ongoing working of salvation in our lives. Even in this age, we can experience the age to come. How do we do that? I'm glad you asked. That's the second evidence. Good works are the purpose, not the cause, of our salvation. Salvation is not by works, but for works. Let me say that again. Salvation is not by works, but for works. This is why this is so easy to get confused. 
in order to procure salvation, works, or in order to, per, to procure salvation, works would have to precede it. Whereas Paul says that good works flow and follow salvation as its preordained fruit. Works are ex- excluded as the originator of salvation, but essential as the subsequent evidence of it. Does that make sense? You wonder, am I a believer? What does your life look like? Because if you're a believer, if you are in Christ, post-conversion, good fruit should be flowing out of you. Good works should be flowing out of you. Now, those good works don't save you, but those good works are a result of God saving and gives evidence of it. Third, the good works themselves are preordained by God. Even those are God's. Paul clearly states that it is not us, but our good works which God prepared beforehand. God's plan to bring us to glory entails the the intermediate steps of conforming us to the good works and to the image of Jesus Christ himself. So, so here's the thing. We, we are called to Christ in this present age. And upon putting our faith in the grace that God has extended to us, we are then brought into the age to come. And we simultaneously live in both ages. And as we live in this age, this present age of sin, where Satan is the ruler of this world, we do good works. And as we do those good works, we expand the kingdom of God in this age, as it will ultimately be done in the age to come, in the new heavens and the new earth. God has preordained us to walk in these good works. And as we do this, as we walk in these good works, he is conforming us to the image of his son. And it's not only our initial reception of salvation that God purposed in eternity past, but also our daily life as believers, our deeds, our thoughts, our works, I want you to note how the paragraph ends in verse 10. He says that we should walk in them. Paul has brought us all the way back to where we started. For those of us who are believers... Paul says, you once walked in trespasses and sin. But now, you are walking in good works which God prepared beforehand. It's all about our walk. It's all about who is influencing our day-to-day life. No longer are we in our trespasses and sin, but we are now walking in good works. 
This morning, if you are here and you don't know Christ, I pray this morning that you would put your faith in God's grace and what he has done for you. Because like Paul says, you, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. If, and if you're here in an effort to clean your life up and to, to kind of get, you know, I need to get myself right for God and let me, let me get my house in order a little bit and then I'll come to God, please stop. Please stop. That is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is what you've heard today. You are dead in your trespasses and sin and it doesn't matter how much you clean the house, it's always going to be filthy. But here's the good news. But God. Bring him the filthy house. Let him clean it. Through the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. And then, walk out in the, those good works that God has preordained for you. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for loving us when we were completely unlovable. And Lord, thank you for continuing to love us even after we've put our faith in you and yet we still waver, we still doubt. But yet you don't give up on us and you love us. Father, this morning, maybe someone in this room realized for the first time their, their desperate need for a Savior because they realize that they are dead in their trespasses and sin. And Father, I pray that this morning they would cry out to you for you to save them. Your word says that we, you, you are faithful to forgive us when we confess and repent of our sin and turn to you. And Father, for the rest of us here, maybe we've wandered off in our walking, Lord, in ways that do not glorify you. That, that as we examine our life and our hearts and our thoughts, they're not full of good works. Instead, they look to be ruled more by this present world than the world to come. Father, I pray that you would lead us in repentance, that, that we would confess that, that we've fallen away from our first love, Lord, and that we would repent and we would turn back to you, our first love this morning, and we would follow you. We would walk with you. And Lord, just like in the garden, you would walk with us. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Amen. A couple quick announcements before we...